Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 65 of the Simple Life podcast. We're getting uh, thick and fast into 2022. Uh, before you know it, this year is going to be another one that's in the history books. But while we're here, we may as well document what the hell is going down. So this week's guest is somebody that uh, actually, you see over there, folks, performed there about three, four years ago and absolutely blew my fucking mind. I was not quite aware of the skills of uh, beatboxers. I had seen them on YouTube, but until actually having somebody of championship quality in my own home performing, uh, th- did I ever really understand this, the skill, the nuance, the, the power of the human voice and how it can be manipulated well by certain people with certain skill sets. So today's guest is one of those thus, uh, thus, thusly one of those people. He is um, a London-based beatboxer who is the UK beatbox vice champ 2012, 2015, 2018, as well as that Midland beatbox champion 2012 and the Flowcase beatbox champion 2018. He is Jim Fox, aka Beat Fox. How are you doing, brother? Yeah, I'm doing very well, mate. Cheers for having me on. Yeah, anytime, man. Anytime. I've uh, obviously wanted to have you on for, for for quite a while and have this uh, have this chat. Um, we've taken a bit of a, a bit of time to get kind of away from just cannabis focused content. Obviously, I've I suppose honed my craft uh, and been known as a cannabis influencer and a kind of a I was going to say drug policy agitator. But part of this project, I've always just wanted to link up the people that I've met in my life, uh, the people that are creative, that are unique, that are a bit a bit different, you know, not run of the mill. And I think you hit that criteria on a, on all counts. So yeah, I'm I'm pleased that we've managed to get time to do this. Yeah, it's a shame we didn't get to the uh, product there. Yeah, man. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Product Earth was a bit different. I mean, I'll do a quick shameless plug here. If you go to the Simple Life YouTube channel, you'll be able to find, I think, nine interviews that we managed to record from our little booth at Product Earth. Uh, We were trying to do quite a few more, but it was a bit manic. We were next to the glass blowing area and uh, those boys do like to party. So there's a lot of loud music and uh, shouting and lariness coming from back uh, back that end. So, yeah, it was a bit interesting. Above you as well or something, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, and there's all the, the tannoys kept going off with uh, reminders of, I could probably even tell you the license plate of the, of the car. It was repeated that often, some guy in a white van. And just, yeah, I remember James getting more and more frustrated over the tannoy going, the entire show cannot start until you move your vehicle. <laughs> yeah, good fun, good fun. Really looking forward to uh, to Product Earth and Paradise and the, the big events this year. Definitely. Yeah, man. Um, all right, well, I suppose we'll, we'll jump into the interviewee style part of this and uh some people that don't know you that have got no sort of previous uh understanding of your work of your history can you sort of give us an idea of what attracted you to beatboxing and how and when you got started well for me i didn't even know what beatboxing was when i first started i was just that annoying kid making noises you know these noises satisfied me and because they satisfied me i kept doing it whether it annoyed people or not you know Mm. um so my earliest experience sounds a bit weird but you know when your parents stop bothering you and that's when you really discover yourself yeah mm. um i put my ears under the water and when my ears were submerged i was going <laughs> oh. when i was young like four or five years old mm-hmm. that just satisfied me you know like i was making these noises and because my ears were submerged it sounded like a full-on sound system within my head or at least subwoofers in my head and um that just became every day for me. You know, I would make noises every day because it was satisfying me. It would be in happy occasions, boring occasions, just to kind of stimulate my brain or make me a little bit happier in these moments. So it kind of 
wasn't I wouldn't call it Tourette's it wasn't a tick it was something that I was conscious I was doing but it was nice to be able to do it at will at any point mm-hmm. and um through the years of growing up I then discovered what beatboxing was you know films like Police Academy highlighted people like Michael Winslow and um these people kind of showed me that I shouldn't be shy about making my noises because I was a very shy kid always making noises in the corner rather than in front of people and uh yeah, it just kind of made me come out my shell a little bit more. And the more that I saw other people doing it, you know, even ska music, the all that kind of stuff, it all was implementing into my life. And I'm like, wow, everyone makes noises, actually. Yeah. And then um, I walked past a street sign in Brixton saying beatbox battle, 9 p.m. Thursday. And I was with my friend who was already uh, like a, a renowned UK MC. He had won the UK eight mile battles and things like that. And he was like, yo bro like let's put you in the beatbox battle you know and i'm like nah like that's the last thing i wanted to do i wasn't a born performer but i enjoyed this the scene and the energy so because he was already a champion in his league he wanted me to be you know like unified with him in a champion status so i went to this battle came second never practiced before never even come up with any routines and that kind of was like wow actually because i've never won anything in my life you know what i mean and i was like i've come second that's really good, you know? So I kind of perfected it a little bit more. Became known as the local beatboxer. I couldn't even go to the shops without someone being like, hey, you're the guy that does noises. Say my name. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know? And like, I couldn't even go to school, get the back of the bus, playground, all of these times where people would just be like, do that thing you do. I couldn't escape it. So every day I was practicing and getting better without really realizing it. And then, um, found out about the UK beatbox championships. And at this point I was 18 years old, just got my driver's license and the prize was a 14 and a half grand brand new Vauxhall Astra. So for that, I was like, you know what? I want that car. <laughs> didn't know about any of the beatbox scene, didn't even know that it existed, didn't know that there was any real competition and came fourth in that. Mm-hmm. And um, that really upset me, I'll be honest, you know, because I got taken out quite early on and I thought I was going to do okay so that showed me that actually I'm good at what I do but I haven't refined it you know yeah so then I practiced a lot more and then I came third second 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 and then won regional events and then from there just kind of got established within the beatbox scene and never stopped it's a very it's quite an addictive thing you know because Mm -hmm. for me it stimulates me it it gives me probably endorphins when I do it and a lot of the time when I'm performing I get a massive boost of adrenaline you know, so for me, it's all these things that my body's craving that I can produce myself. Interesting. So as you, you kind of highlighted yourself about you, you brought in something I was going to kind of ask you about of uh, of ticks and kind of motor neuron uh, mechanisms that children sort of develop. Because, as you say, it's it's a, a sensory feedback. It's sort of some people on autism spectrum sort of have those. They become, but when it becomes conscious, as you're saying, that you are you've really refined over many years this sort of skill set. Do you find that beatboxing kind of it focuses attention from elsewhere? Because I've I found that a lot of people I've known that have got say ADHD or, or things like that, and that the rest of their life they will have one or two activities that again is something that they've found in youth and they've carried through that just just haunts them like layers of focus them. Definitely, I mean, I think in beats a lot, and I think that's. Are very good for my brain otherwise i overthink or i think too deeply into things so if, in my head i'm going 
And for me, that's a nice feeling rather than being like, oh my God, I'm panicking about this thing, you know, that's completely out of my control, but beatboxing will just kind of bring it back. And I don't even have words processing in my head. It's just sounds. And I, I think that that's a big blessing because a lot of the time I'm not stressing out about a lot of things. I'm just creating music and vibing, you know? I might just, yeah. I might have a load of shit going on, but I've just got a wicked baseline in my head. But also on the flip side, I feel like it's um, a dog wagging its tail to an extent or just keeping myself comfortable, you know? Like mm-hmm. if I'm busy doing something, but I don't, this doesn't need words for what I'm doing. So I don't know, it could be as small as doing the washing, folding clothes or drawing a picture. I will still go little things with my teeth or my tongue or something is always going on within my brain that's keeping me ticking in a in a time scale, if that makes sense. I do a lot of the things I do to time. So even if I'm cooking, you know, and I've got a beat in my head, I'm chopping in time. I'm closing the door in time. I'm opening that door in time. I'm opening the oven. It like everything Mm -hmm. is within timing. And interesting very natural for it to happen like that and if i'm not beatboxing i'm listening to music and that gives me my rhythm for the day does that translate into sort of physical movement in terms of like dancing do you do you dance much i've seen you obviously perform and you you move a a bit but in terms of like an independent thing because imagine it's quite a similar once you think in that kind of mindset it it feels like it would translate into the sort of similar skill set dancing as such but definitely moving fluidly to the music 100 percent whether it's walking in time to it or something like that, you know? I think it's, you get it, it's sort of a tuning to it, isn't it? That it's, yeah. I, I often say, say <clears throat> I get people say to me because of, I guess, my other work, oh, you must be really musically inclined. I'm like, no, I, I, it's like, I enjoy it, but I can't, I can't process it. So yeah. I can't think in beats in the same way. I can enjoy the beat, but as soon as I'm trying to then hear it and analyze it, it's, my gears are going so my brain just can't quite compute it. It enjoys the end process. And again, that's why I said in, in the intro, why I was so so blown away with the, the performance that you did here to watch the the spectrum of evolution and how fast it you could play off the acoustics of the room, even and watch people's responses to then see what they were enjoying and move up and continue. It was yeah, rhythmic rhythmic. It was the same as, as somebody that's masterful at, at dancing or any other sort of musical talent as far as i see it's almost like you you learn the same bunch of skills although i'm saying that from a layman's position i imagine within within that skill set it's very much a spectrum yeah but i mean that's why i love these performances as well because every room has a different sound every person you perform to has different sounds they like and what they enjoy you know so when i'm performing in front of a small room i can really captivate that audience and every little sound i can be like oh that sounded really nice in this room so i'm going to do that again same as the sound system every sound system is different so I always do a quick sound check to see what frequencies are really piercing through that sound system. And you work with what you've got, you know, work smart, not harder. I'm not going to try and do something on a sound system that doesn't sound good. I'll just do a different routine, you know, mm. or say if I'm performing in front of a room full of five people and I go, and everyone's like, whoa, what's that? <laughs> I'm going to go. And do that sound to the extent that I can do it to show off a little bit mm. and be like, yo, I'm hitting your, smiling points you know you're yeah. loving and that's what i'm going to work on work with mm. like no, I, I entirely can relate to that in terms of public speaking you know i've spoken in front of thousands i've spoken in front of two i've spoken to people one-on-one a lot and it, it is it's, i suppose it is that fluidity in a moment isn't it it's been able to read a situation so it's a, a kind of intelligence yeah i mean so like 
90% of the beatboxers I know will have a structured show or 90% of the performers I know are going to have a structured show. But I really love the element of freestyle and having the freedom to create while performing rather than just sticking to a set list. You know, don't get it wrong. Most of my shows, I've got a set list next to me, but it's more for a refresher for my, my memory bank because when I'm in the mode, sometimes I can't think about what I need to. So I can just look to my right and be like, ah, that'll work great now, you know? But I love being able to just kind of freestyle and go with the flow. And that's something I really love about my job, that I can just do that. And 99% of my bookings, people are booking me because I'm beatbox, not because I can beatbox, but because I am who I am. And that gives me a lot more freedom on my shows as well, because I can showcase what I do, not, oh, I want to hear White Stripes. Can you do that? Obviously, but it's not, do you know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, entirely, because... Again, as a public speaker in a cannabis and drug reform space, um, yeah, it's difficult to not feel like I'm the token activist, as it were. I've been booked in quite a lot of slots where I felt initially like, oh, he's got a counter narrative, stick him on, we'll, we'll deal with it sort of thing. And then it, when I first got sort of, uh, I don't want to say headhunted, but sought out to be a, an active speaker against somebody on a national platform, for, for the fact that it was me and the work that I'd done previously, yeah, it was a really sort of humbling um, sort of situation, you know, to kind of go, well, wait a minute, it's, yeah, I know I was good at the thing I'm doing, but you want me because I'm good at the thing and because I'm me. And yeah. it was really, yeah, a, a powerful sort of unifying feeling of ability and humility. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And I think that, that you can speak more passionately about what you're speaking about rather than just being like these are the facts listen to the facts it's like no this is me my opinion and my experience as well yeah do you find i know obviously we've just discussed in that you you work from the feedback of the crowd and from the room and the acoustics and and but do you find yourself do you ever get lost in in performing do you feel that you ever lose and i don't mean in a sense of a negative loss but in terms of you just separate yourself from them you get so into what you're doing uh, sometimes, sometimes, but that's more when I'm not doing solo shows. When I do solo shows, I'm always thinking about the next thing. I don't really get lost in what I'm doing because I have to think a couple of steps ahead when I'm freestyling. Because yeah. if I'm not thinking, it stops, you know, and then I have to look at my set list. Whereas when I'm um, performing with other artists and other beatboxers, musicians, whatever it may be, I feel like that is a real true time to be like, ah. Oh, this this now you know because you can listen to them and you can get encouragement off of them and sometimes it's great as well like i was playing at a festival in bulgaria and i was knackered like absolutely shattered i've done about eight shows this weekend and someone was like oh come up like come up and just join our little um jam session so i did and i was knackered but then as someone comes on with energy it re-engages your energy you know so i was like a fully charged duracell battery when matey started spitting and going and even though i'm knackered i'm like got a whole new lease of life and I'm like okay now I have to keep up with his fresh lungs <laughs> you know so yeah, yeah I'm really kind of getting pushed as well you know interesting so where do you sort of find uh you obviously you've been at this most of your life but what sort of musical influences and I guess non-musical influences because you literally can pull a noise from sort of anything but where do you kind of derive your your new sounds from as it were um so I wouldn't say new sounds, maybe styles and the way of performing. Because, um, I mean, with YouTube now, as it's a global thing, you can get sounds. So put it this way, innit? There might be a guy in the Philippines that is doing a crazy sound, and now that's accessible to everyone worldwide, whereas we wouldn't have access to that before. 
So there is now a much more universal scape of sounds that is mm. more accessible to everybody. Whereas before it was kind of, we were limited before this kind of thing. But for me, I just kind of, I like seeing where music can go and what I can do with it. Um, recently, I've taken a shrine to start in my shows where everyone has their eyes closed. Okay. So it's more, I want to do um, immersive um, shows rather than just being like, this is the most crazy new sound I've done. It's, I want to make you feel different in this moment so if everyone has their eyes closed they're all seeing and feeling something completely different whereas if everyone has their eyes open and staring at me they're all looking at the same thing they're all listening to the same thing but i feel like you have your own visuals you know when you close your eyes and you listen to music it's completely unique to you it really personalizes the experience for them yeah. and um i done i first done this with a hundred piece choir so there was 50 of us on stage and 50 within the audience and um, so now imagine you're blindfolded within the audience, but you don't know, mate, next to you is a singer. So as they start on stage, to the left of you, you've got, uh, so it's three-dimensional sound all around you. And then you've got me weaving in and out of the crowd going. <laughs> and it was uh, an amazing experience because I could see people smiling and their faces lighting up and being like, what was that? Or I could even see my friends and just mess around with them and go, in their ear, you know, and walk off. And um, I love that kind of show because you can really feel the response and it's all a huge growing thing until all the 50 people that were immersed in the audience move to the stage and then it's 100 voices and me all unifying at one point. And then we're like, you can open your eyes if you want or you can keep your blindfolds on and stay immersed. Mm. But I love them types of shows and that really kind of brought forward to me what I want to do with people working on more immersive stuff. And also I've been studying sound healing and sound therapy recently. So I kind of want to, in the next few years, I'm not going to talk too deeply about it, but in the next few years, I want to come up with a new concept. I'm going to call it hyper healing. And it's going to have um, hydro, um, what's it called? Sorry. Oh, I can't even think right now. Hydrotherapy mixed with light therapy and sound therapy, basically. So I was working with a school in Kingston that they have state of the art speakers underwater. And um, all of the students I were working with, they're all differently able students. So, for example, if you were born with one leg and one arm, you're very immobile your whole life. And being immersed in this pool is probably the most mobile you've ever been or that you can be. And we have one-on-one -on -one carers that, you know, help guide these students. But what I was amazed by is, say, me or you going in the deep end, putting our head under the water is nothing. But to these students, it, they might have been in that pool for over a year. They've never gone to the deep end. But certain frequencies, certain sounds, certain music helps them get a lot more comfortable within the environment. You know, and that's something that I really want to focus on in the next few years and come up with some kind of concept I can travel with because I can't travel with a swimming pool and speakers. So I'm designing something currently. Um, and I've been building speakers for the past two years just to kind of get my head around certain aspects of sound design. And um, yeah, in the next few years, I'm looking at creating a whole new wave of healing with the human voice and ancient techniques of like crystal bowls tibetan bowls and animal sounds you know and all of these i want to be reverberated and vibrated through the human body because there's definitely uh, frequencies that i can pinpoint for positive influences you know they're smashing out cancer cells right now with high-pitched frequencies mm. as a beatboxer i always feel like my hair and nails grow really quick because i'm hitting to so frequencies and there's a lot of positive frequencies within that range and they're the ones i want to pinpoint and highlight and kind of focus on 
Yeah. Uh, sorry, just immediately want to apologise to listeners there. It seems my next-door neighbour decides to drill into the wall, the common wall that we share for that sound. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what I was going to sort of speak of, was as you were then describing this experience, was... Um, uh, I think you frequent it as well. Shambhala Festival was the first time I I discovered in the the little hippie healing area. I, can't remember the, I think it is called the hippie healing area. The the back in front of the manor house. And I went and I did some some yoga and some some meditation there one time. And I went and did chanting um, with with a group of, of people and watched yeah this very odd unifying moment where it, you'd hit frequencies and I couldn't. It almost I'd almost go deaf. I was producing the same sound as the others around me, so I couldn't interpret the, the difference. And it was just so, like, almost discombobulating, like, disorientating to a certain degree, but then also not. Yeah, it was this really weird, it was the first time I kind of experienced um, something like that outside of my individual uh, exploration of entheogenic drugs or, um, or my own individual meditation. It was like this first collective experience, and it was entirely through the sound. It kind of, not hypnotized, but... It, it was, I found it enchanting and it was just so melodic and just so entrancing. Like I say, I had just such a wonderful experience. So I think that yeah, the combination of all of the things that you've stated together in, in one arena, I think, yeah, it could be, could be massively beneficial. I mean, I've been learning about binaural beats uh, the past sort of few years is something that I've added to my own meditation and yoga routines. Um, and yeah, as you're saying, what they're looking at with understanding frequencies, destroying cancer cells and things like that i mean we're in a position where the guys that were talking about the uh the pyramids as being sound frequency chambers they're, they're not looking crazy as crazy as the ones that no exactly i, I mean I, I visited the pyramid about 10 years ago and there was a guy chanting in there and that was for me like when i got there i didn't know how to think you know because it was reverberating through the walls and for a split second i was scared when I walked in, being like, what is this? What am I walking into? But then at the same time, it was really grounding. And I was like, this is actually really nice to be here, you know? But for a second, as I walked in, it was overwhelming just being like, what is this echo of sound where this guy is just standing in the corner chanting? And then after I was there for about 10, 15 seconds, I was like, actually, this is beautiful. This is really amazing. Like, how many people are going to experience a guy singing in a fucking pyramid, <laughs> you know? And yeah, that's exactly what you're about. It's like, that's that's what I kind of want to recreate. I'm looking at, I want to build a dome, have that as my workshop space. So I want to, everything that I'm going to be building towards this hyper healing is going to be a few years in the making, but I'm going to need a lot of hands to help build it, you know, because I'm studying sound at the moment, but what speakers choose. I need to think about, um, because before the speakers were immersed in water, I want to know whether... If I create a water bed, it's going to be the same. Whether the pH level in the water changes the sound, whether salt water is good for it. Do you know what I mean? I don't know any of these things, and all these things need to be tested before I go into production, because that's something I really need yeah. to kind of focus on. And there are so many different attributes that might change or enhance these therapy sessions. There's, there's some, yeah, and there's so many interesting avenues. I'm thinking of, I can't think of the festival for the life of me, but talking to a guy who did the used bees for therapy and you laid on a bed and there were bees under the thing and the frequency of the bees buzzing uh was was with they use the sound therapy so they're using natural sound therapy and so there's the inclusion of all these different elements where they'd be considered pseudoscience they'd be considered you know not accepted within the modern realm of 
pharma pharmacological um healthcare as they like to call it <laughs> with wealth care more like um but so i think these there's going to be these other avenues of people that are going to have that expertise and that knowledge as you say and i think it's many hands make light work so i do hope that you can find others that have taken the time to really to study this because we'll have all had these experiences especially then when you consider say music festivals and things like mdma you know what i mean and, and feeling the power of, of music when you're in kind of an altered state you know to, to, to truly tranquilize and unify and just 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 yeah hypnotize people is powerful beyond measure speaking about psychedelic society they do a lot of um Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm looking at partnering up with the uh, Psychedelic Society at some point, and they do a lot of um, talks and experiences with mushrooms. Um, so I think the therapy sessions that I'm looking at creating will kind of really interlock with them because they are experts in these psychedelics, you know, so to kind of talk someone through a journey with my experience could be a revolutionary thing. I mean, yeah, it because that's something they are looking at is integrative therapies. So we're seeing they're doing like ketamine infusion clinics uh, in London and Bristol, I believe. Um, and they are going to be bringing MDMA and other things into these sessions. And they are looking at every part of this, the material you lay on, the blindfold you wear, you know, what material it is, how it feels. They're really starting to understand sensory feedback. When you open up that, the sort of the, the tap of sensory experience into the brain, when you tap into these experiences, it can be overwhelming without correct guidance. And I think sound being such an overwhelming universal thing and the fact that you feel it physically resonate with you, like said, to be able to direct the experience or keep the experience then present and grounded, I think instead of going off into the mysterious and the mystical would be wonderful in certain trauma therapy to be able to say that people going and oh all right and getting a bit fantastical about it i think being grounded by the sound and being the, the especially the resonance of bass and feeling feeling yourself and then being able to challenge and, and look at trauma and speak that through with the therapist in that environment i think would be amazingly amazingly uh beneficial to both sound therapy and conventional talking therapies i think the unification of this post pharmacological ssris and all the other crap uh, sorry, options that some people choose to take that I wouldn't in my opinion, but yeah, sorry, I overplayed my opinion there. Sorry, folks. <laughs> yeah, just going off that, it's like what you're saying with the sensory experiences, it could be as small as putting a weighted blanket on someone, but someone else might feel heavily restricted by that weighted blanket. So every session that I would be creating would be individual. It's not like I'm going to get 15 people lined up and I'm going to do the same session to them because it needs to be catered individually. And this showed me when I was in Bali with my ex, um, we went and done a sound therapy session and I really enjoyed it. I went off into like a really nice chilled, relaxed zone and I felt like I was levitating at one point and she was hot and itchy and felt like she was stuck up a tree. And that was how she felt. She felt like she was stuck in a tree and was hot and itchy. And I was like, this is crazy because I really enjoyed that session. You hated it. And that kind of showed me that I need to personalize these sessions and I can't just be like, oh, here's the layout. There you go. Press play. You know, it yeah. needs to be catered individually for everyone. And you need to have a consultation and figure out what you're doing. And I want to yeah. really bring in um, light therapy as well. I don't know if you know much about light therapy, but I've been reading up on that. And I think it's 44 hertz or 44,000 hertz. Um, but if you flash that in, 
it stimulates your brain's neurons basically and with people that suffer from dementia and alzheimer's their neurons aren't touching like they should so by stimulating them it creates little connections that will start not building the connections again but just gets them a little bit better it's like if you've got a pair of shoes and you clean them you know they're still going to be old and battered but they're going to be working a bit better than they were and it's proven that these sessions two to three times a week can actually make these um, patients remember a lot more you know so say if they sit in this chair three or four five times they're like do you want me to sit here whereas the sixth fifth sixth seventh session they're sitting in the chair they know what to do they're putting the headset on you know whereas it's taken four or five sessions to do that whereas if you didn't have these four or five sessions they it would be the first session every time for them and it's amazing so i want to kind of implement all of these things i don't just want to stimulate the dmt i want to vibrate your brain's neurons and get them creating healthy growth yeah i mean this is something we're starting to understand about neurotransmitters and the endogenous cannabinoids are play a vital role in neurotransmission and so we know that you can stimulate uh, endogenous cannabinoid production in the human body uh, apologies again for my neighbor banging vigorously on the wall next to me um through meditation through exercise we've learned in recent years the run is high is in is an endogenous cannabinoid uh, system feedback so light i think definitely plays a vital role into this because we've known then for I suppose in the, the spiritual arts and the in mysticism uh, about meditating at the, at the golden hours, sunrise, sunset, and the change of the frequency of the light. I mean, if anyone has done this, anyone, I quite like to frequent going in the woods, big fire, eat some mushrooms, and then have the evening. And then in the morning, meditate with the sunlight. And you can feel, you can see the free, you can physically, the light wave coming from the sun as it rises. And you can feel it's a different kind of um, experience neurologically. Yeah. No, definitely. <laughs> Sorry, this, yeah, damn neighbors. Um, yeah, so it, it, I think you're, you're going to be one of the first adapters to where a lot of people are going to be moving. Do you know what I mean? We're starting to really see, especially with the licensing laws sort of being adjusted in the UK, a lot more integration of entheogenic compounds or more traditionally non psychedelics um, within therapy. No, completely. And it's, it's only getting, you know, like people that were skeptics are now slightly coming over, over that and then getting more used to the idea that it's a thing that can happen. Like when I was younger, my dad kicked me out for smoking weed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Whereas now they're legalizing that in many countries and CBD is a massive thing in the UK right now. And I even give it to my nan for her arthritis. And it's one of those things that before he would have been like, you're not giving my mum that, <laughs> you know, but it's, uneducated people that are just fearful of something they're not educated in yeah man in entirely and uh, it's wonderful to see how the progression of cannabis laws are so, so quickly affecting for the ben better benefit of most people or at least in terms of uh, the access to knowledge about what these compounds and substances can do you know now this this generation i mean 20 years ago there was a handful of people you could maybe find in one general part of the country that would know how to synthesize and extract dmt now now you're growing up with these these carts and and the ability to break break through anywhere yeah yeah you can get a vape pen with dmt in it and stuff like that it's, it's crazy that the technology is combined with it as well you know yeah man it's and it's so easy to kind of deal with 
as you were saying something before about like CBD is kind of, I've, I've been saying for a while now that CBD is the gateway drug, you know, into the acceptance of everything else. Once you kind of go, well, if we were wrong about this, maybe we were wrong about these other things. And so I, I can genuinely see a day where your, the, your dad will be prescribed by the NHS, things like microdose caps of psilocybin, cannabis or cannabinoid based therapies as well to, as you were saying, stimulate, uh, they call it neurogenesis, so the development of new neural pathways or the, uh, what's the other one called? It's uh, neuroplasticity, which is sort of the creation of novel pathways and the pursuit of like energy down and novel neural connections. Yes. So basically the, the remembering of a lot of things is the brain's kind of like uh, gullies over a mound and water runs through the gaps. And so then these they get blocked up. They're, they're looking at them as plaques or proteins in the brain. And that's where there is the saying that Alzheimer's occurs and the saying that the clearing of these things through the, the ingestion of these kind of compounds is really leading towards this, uh, yeah, this kickstarting of the brain almost. You're putting this energy and this power back into the brain. And I think the same as you're saying is you can, uh, well, I, I, as again, I experienced it when you sort of performed up here, is I, the, the hairs on top of the back of my head, but you can feel the sound resonating in different places. People are then at music festivals, you'll experience this most typically in bass when you get that real heavy, just woof feeling of you being pulled into the ground. But then at the different sort of frequencies that, um, that you could be able to produce and provide as including in uh, the therapies, I think you could really start to understand that actually this frequency helps with, with these sorts of ailments or thoughts or, you know? Yeah. So like, even like I've got a really low hum that I do. And there was a friend of mine, Toby, and every time he hugged you, he had a super low bass, but he would hug you and he would go, you know, and this bass would travel through you. And it yeah. was like, the hug would just warm you. You wouldn't even even if you didn't clock he was humming it could be in a really loud environment but this would just reverberate through your body because it was such a low tone and you would leave the hug with a smile you know and it's just like wow every time you know every time he hugged someone he'd done that and it was just an amazing attribute to his life that that was something that got me thinking about wow you know like that just that hum just that hug and the hum is enough to produce a smile so what else is the capabilities of this sound wow yeah man do you, do you find other peers of yours are interested in similar sort of things? Like what's kind of the, the general culture of beatboxing like? There's a few beatboxers that have branched out into, there's one I know that's a shaman at the moment and he does um, like therapies, life coaching and healing sessions. He's in, living in Ibiza at the moment. And uh, I want more people to kind of take this path, you know, because it's not all about who can do the fastest beat, the lowest bass, the fucking highest pitch sound it should be more than just trying to impress your peers. You know, you want to fucking heal people. That's, that's the stage I'm at now. I've been performing for over 15 years and not that I'm bored of performing. I fucking love it, but it's, I want to connect with people more. You know, I don't want to just be an entity on a stage that is unreachable. I want to be connecting on people on a one-on-one -on -one basis and being like, this yeah. is the power of sound. You know, I was a very annoying kid to start with, but look at the process and where it's come from. Yeah, man. So if I basically, if I can make people feel like I do when I beatbox, <laughs> that's the goal. Exactly. That's what I was going to sort of circle back to is the way you described it before of this sort of elation and this energy and this power uh, from performing. And obviously quite a lot of that will be uh, hormonal and neurological chemical feedback. Uh, but 
then in terms of the, the, the resonance within your cells, within your body, the, the way the sound physically travels and is present within you, if, the, if then, yeah, you can start to, as I guess you've seen enough um, evidence in your life in terms of direct uh, anecdotal experience and, and direct, direct experience, but if we, yeah, through people like yourselves exploring it throughout maybe less of the limitation of a traditional scientific lens, can then you start to build a whole data set that I think would then start to inform just the general understanding of human nature. Do you know what I mean? And, and how we interact with this, all of this around us, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, a lot of people, they even, they hum, they sing when they want to block things out or if they want to make themselves feel better, they'll put a song and sing to it. And it's all about these frequencies that we can create within ourselves that are positive, you know, and that's something that should be expressed more, I think. Yeah, I've never really thought, because obviously my brain is kind of, yeah, you got like, la, 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 you know, the kid doing la, 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 even that is a repetitive beat in a frequency. It's some form, it's almost irrelevant what is the external thing that is being heard. Yeah. They are trying to create a feeling that just happens to manifest as sound almost. Yeah, exactly. And it's the same as me when I beatbox because it makes me feel good. You know, through lockdown, there was no shows. Mm -hmm. So I was mad depressed for the first probably year. You know, I all my shows stopped, my income had stopped. I was living at my friend's place because I couldn't afford rent anymore, you know? And um, I got into art and that was my expression because I was so depressed that I didn't want to beatbox, you know? I'll go and that'd kind of be it, <laughs> you know? And that was to yeah. myself. And that was more of a tick then because it was my body wanted to beatbox. I needed to make sound, but I personally didn't want to. And um, yeah, through kind of art and graffiti and calligraphy, that was my expression. And that's kind of, I love freestyling, you know, all my shows are freestyles. So for me, putting a pen on paper and just doing a line, you then need to do another one, you know, and another one and another one and build from that. So I love that element of just kind of creating from nothing, which is what beatboxing is. Mm -hmm. yeah, so do you find that it's, quite translatable the skill set in terms of as you were saying the what you've learned in beatboxing too because i've seen obviously uh, on your instagram you've done quite a few sort of big pieces and yeah the, the i like the calligraphy and almost the ge geometric sort of nature of the shapes that you bring into it yeah i just love the flow you know mm -hmm. um everything that i do has to flow whether it's cooking whether it's walking beatboxing art it all has to have a natural flow. And that's why I never really go out of a plan when I do paint or I do do some lettering or something. I just kind of freestyle because that for me is the best way to learn and adapt. Mm -hmm. okay. Okay. Um, uh, that's quite, I'm looking, I'm looking at my notes, sorry, over there. There's the most cliched question that you, you've probably heard, probably heard a thousand times. I'm going to ask you anyway. What's your favourite sound to make? I imagine it quite it fluctuates, but what, what's your current favourite sound to make? Um, I've got a few. So one that um, is the loudest one is, sorry if that hurt your ears. <laughs> um, good I can do it louder. And um, that for me, is like a little call. It's a duck call. And because it's a human vocal, it pierces through sound systems. So a lot of the time at festivals, if I lose my friends or something every now and then, I'll just go but really loud. And if I don't hear a response, I don't hear a response. But every now and then I'll do it. And if I go and in the distance, I hear I know what I'm <laughs> it's like we do the sound until we find each other and that yeah. started when i was in sainsbury's you know like just doing my shopping and i've lost my friend in the aisles i go then we find each other you know and that's how it stemmed and um so that's one of my favorite sounds at the moment just because it's kind of like people know me for that 
and every time I do it, everyone's like, whoa, what was that? And the same, yeah. um, that's my signature sound. That's called the beatbox whistle. And I feel like a magician when I do that for the first time to people, you know, because it's such a kind of robotic sound that people don't think it's me. They're like, nah, you've got that thing in your tongue, you know, that you buy on Brighton Beach for a quid. I'm like, nah, that's, even if you had that little device, you still couldn't replicate my sound. So yeah, them two are probably my favorites. And then on mic, I've got a really low hum. It just, it's like a bass swoop. Mm. So yeah, they're my top three, I'd say. Nice. So I just think actually that if then people, are, so the, the, the process, as a beatbox, do you live, can you were saying earlier about the, the guy in the Philippines puts this thing online and all of a sudden everyone's got access. As a beatboxer, is it a case of you can hear and watch another person perform and deconstruct that? Can you, or could it, is, does it literally just like your brain, you hear it and you go, because <laughs> the expression I was going to do that was mental. It was like, I could hear it and just go, eh? And it just kind of does it. So it's, it's a good question, yeah, because before YouTube, I had MP3 samples, you know? I was downloading MP3 files and being like, how are they doing that? You know, and I had to deconstruct it. So my style of beatboxing is a lot different to a lot of others because they'd been taught, whereas I learned it, you know? And I was deconstructing it myself when I was young. And uh, my snares and certain sounds that I do are unique to me because I had to make them off of how I think they were made. Whereas now with YouTube, it's a more universal sound. So back in the day before YouTube, someone, I could close my eyes, someone could beatbox and I could be like, they're from England, they're from France, they're from Bulgaria, they're from America, you know? And I, you would have an accent to your beatbox generally. But now because of YouTube, it's a lot more universal sound. So you get, you could close your eyes now and it could be one of a hundred people because they all sound the same because they've all been listening to the same person. And you can see it, you can see the way they make the noises. But there are a few anomalies that make some noises that you're just like how you know and i guess it's the same when i go and people are like how i'm like that with a lot of sounds that people are making now because with youtube everyone's trying to be the quirkiest you don't stand out unless you're different nowadays because there's ten thousand people doing the same thing more there's a thing called swiss beatbox and they just hit a billion streams and that's huge for the beatbox community because it shows how much it's grown over the past 15 years when i first started it's a very small community and now when you go to events, there's hundreds of people, thousands of people turning up. Yeah, so how kind of has the scene evolved? Because I've, I imagine, again, entirely layman, just, just looking at the traditional trajectory of other subject matter that I've studied, is that it would kind of be created in isolation. It would then gain its own kind of legacy and its own kind of uh, ethos and community and culture. And then it develops a kind of hierarchy through competition. And then yeah. from from that, it then becomes accepted, I guess, as, as genre. And then now I've seen a lot of, I mean, it's, it's mainly what we're seeing in the 21st century, a lot of, but just genre mashup. I'm seeing that beatbox is not isolated to its own, to its, to its own genre. It is more accepting. And as you were saying before, of like people jamming in the, even like the way the, the rap and hip hop has evolved as well, the, the sounds within that, I feel there's more, liquidity uh, that people can flow between, you know? Definitely. So kind of within the last three, four years of beatboxing, it's turned a lot more musical. Whereas before it was, it's, a, it's derived from hip hop, you know? So it was always about the beats and the bass. Whereas now because it's evolving and everyone wants to be different, you, um, they're all trying to create music, you know? So a lot of people now when they're doing showcases, it's not 
starting with the bass and starting with the beat, they're going to start with the vocal and they're creating lyrics. And now with competitions, it's kind of a song contest, you know, who's written the performed the best song rather than who's done the best battle. But then there are still people that are good at both and there are people that are just raw battlers, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But there are some people that are just going to come out and showcase pure skill mm-hmm. against someone that might just do half a song and then showcase pure skill. So it's evolved a lot in that sense because when I was battling, it was just against and a lot of the time it was a call and response. So say if I finish on matey's going to come in and go easy and then go into his thing where a lot of the times now I find that people have their set prepared and they're just going to stick to that structure. Whereas again, I love freestyling. Every battle I've ever done, bar one battle, I plan to join base round, but most of the time I freestyle because I want to be in the moment and counter them. I don't want to just come with a routine. I want to be able to, okay, you've done that. I'm going to take bits and bobs of what you've done and use it back at you. So do you feel the part of the evolution then is caused by the technology, but then in, a, in an absence of a, an area of cutting your teeth. So almost the, I think some of what we discussed before the camera started rolling of maybe people that perform very well in their bedroom in their own controlled environment, but they've never tested that. So they can present and gain a big audience and a big following now online and be, get this great hype and everyone bigging them up as the next big thing. And as soon as they, step onto a stage, they may have social anxiety or they may have, they've not really performed to that level. They've not understood uh, the, the, the culture of it. And so everything else crumbles, whereas then co- compare that or contrast it to someone like yourself, then you've come up through the, the, the culture and you've, you've really, you've, you've, I don't want to say earned it because that's not what I mean, but you've really, uh, well, yeah, actually you, you have, you've, you've earned your skill set. So rather than it's, and I'm not saying the others haven't, but I mean that you've earned it through your peers, through gaining their respect, through their interactions, through it's not just a, you've not just trailed and found all of this stuff and uh, and brought it all in and uh, you've gone out there and actually sought it. And I think yeah. that that genuine evolution is something we're seeing as an absence in most industries and pursuits. So is it the same? Massively, massively. So um, I was at a jam on... I think it was Sunday and um, beatboxers came from all over the UK and the most common question I got asked was um, how are you doing this as a living? How do you do this as a living? And I explained to them that when I was old enough to go to events or even before I was going to clubs when I was 17 performing when it was an 18 plus on the door but um, I was paying and going to events you know I met Skinny Man 10 years ago and beatboxed for him and like Rag and Bone Man I was on stage with him before he blew up because I was paying to go to hip-hop events and grabbing a microphone you know and a lot of the time people are like what are you gonna spit bars I'm like nah tell the DJ to stop playing his music for a second and I had to affiliate myself and be in all these circles and I spent years grafting and going to numerous events maybe three days a week I was getting the bus to Croydon from Kingston which is like a good hour and a half journey you know and getting my face seen at these events and that's what a lot of people don't realize now that yeah you can have all the followers and all the exposure but you need to work with the groups this is why i love gav thtc mm. shout out to gav you know um yeah, big he's got my first ever beatbox battle i was a nobody you know and i stepped off stage and he was like yo bro i see something in you here's a t-shirt and i was like what me you're giving me a t-shirt why i'm nobody and then that connection was made and I was like, fuck, like, 
I need to respect this guy. Like I've searched the company and he's doing what he's done. He's given clothes to people like foreign beggars at the time. And um, that made me feel good about myself, you know? And he works with Roots Music and it showed me that, you know, I wouldn't have ever got to meet this guy if I never went and done these events, you know? And if I wasn't such a face and turning up and always representing the craft. Do you think it's, I mean, it's something that I kind of, realized when i got for i was gonna say forced kind of politely in a jovial kind of proddy way by tyler green into doing more uh like writing and more work uh is in producing that kind of thing and for ages i had this thing of i couldn't get the first thing right i could get it to a degree of i'm happy but then five minutes later i'm like i can do better but i can do better because i never could it was never being submitted initially. It took me months to get my first written piece together because I was always questioning myself. And I think it feels the same thing with then almost translate over that then because of that, I got really, I, I honed a lot of skills that by the time I actually got moving and produ uh, producing content, people were really engaging with it. So I think that, yeah, but unless you have that initial submission that first point of going giving it to the world letting it face scrutiny letting it potentially be destroyed blown up in your face being told you're the worst thing that ever walked i mean i hate this i don't want to sound like a, a 1950s dad but it's character building in a certain way you know what i mean yeah i mean i went i done a live stream on dnb tv when i wasn't ready you know i was about three years into the beatbox game and i was proper hyped i'm like yeah i'm a rock star smoking joints outside went on there i was way too stoned got dry mouth i was doing a half an hour set and at the time i thought i was good but because of the eq on the live stream and stuff it didn't sound too good for whatever else was going on whatever people were watching and i got so much like what is this why is this guy blowing raspberries blah 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 and i hated it and i'm like fuck it i'm never doing anything like that again and then i was like yeah but the internet is going to be the worst critics always always because they're faceless you know anytime you do a show anytime you go and step onto a mic or do anything in person you're not going to have a thousand people being like what the fuck was that mate you're going to have a thousand people being like well done stepping up there and it's a completely different thing online which is something i learned very early on maybe 12 years ago so mm. anything you do online you should never delve into any of the negative things because they're going to come regardless yeah if, it... if you're getting hate you're doing something right positive or negative you're touching somebody you are making somebody pause their life to then interact with you because of something that you have done and yeah this it's a weird kind of mechanism that i guess because of covid and lockdown now more people i think uh retreated into the online space but exactly because of the mechanism you've just described everybody feels like everything's shit and everything's falling apart yeah. Whereas there's then this all this physical realm in front of us. We don't need this metaverse. We've got the the meverse. Us shit right in front of us right now. That's this is this is real shit. Don't go spend any money on, you know, a fucking house with the land that ain't going to exist. You know what I mean? It's like beatboxing. I think is another one of those those skill sets where I'm hoping that now the 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 culture is going to have to bring it back into it. I'm hoping that. Look, licensing and everything else in this country is a fucking nightmare. The pubs are really struggling. Most of the venues are in serious dire trouble. Most of the main um, festivals are going to be in serious trouble when summer rolls around. So I'm really hoping there is this resurgence and all of these people that have then... Three, three, 
sorry, I was going to say three of my residents, uh, resident spots I was performing at in London have all gone under. They've all sold their clubs. So that's yeah. three less shows a month that I'm doing. That's three three less clubs as well for others to to horn on stage to see you to try and grab that mic to try and uh, you know fucking uh, cut their teeth as they say, and it's that's what I'm fearing is this loss of real world experience this loss of that's what I discovered with my activism in the club scene I walked into Product Earth in like 2015 whatever it was so this is the future I want a part of this I then spent the next year basically traveling around the country going anywhere and everywhere where the culture was where the people gathered to try and figure out the scene to be like, well, if this is what I want to be a part of, I need to figure out what this is. I didn't just sort of sit at home and go, well, like, I need to construct a, a, a character and a facade and a personality and then brandize and sell myself and make myself seem this infallible non-human robotic entity that just churns out successful, whatever product it is that I've decided to go into, you know? Yeah. yeah and that's it. Like you just need to, be present and showcase yourself and be yourself and that's it yeah man uh suppose one thing i did want to ask you about and you're kind of yeah answering uh, one of my questions um in your actions now and that's sort of what's the, the the drug scene the cannabis scene sort of like in beatboxing we've had a couple of musicians on the podcast uh previous that have kind of stated that cannabis is quite large in uh in the music scene so i was just wondering if it was sort of similar in the beatboxing world yeah, it's pretty similar in the beatbox world. Obviously, you get your people that don't smoke. That's just a given. But um, most of the events that I've ever held, I have to make sure that it's smoke-friendly. You know, Not that you can smoke in the venue, but they're okay if people popping in and out and smelling of weed. Yeah. Because if I'm running an event and that's not okay, mm. they're not going to be okay with the event. <laughs> and that's just how yeah. it is. So a lot of the venues that I scout, I have to go and speak to the manager and just lay it down to them and be like, this is the deal. Like, is that going to be okay? And most of the venues I do are good with that, you know? Yeah, I suppose, especially now, anybody listening that's going to be putting on a certain underground events in the UK this year, and you know who you are, you find people out there, this is a perfect time to go and approach all of these venues, these cafes, these organisations and entities because they've been paying rent, they've been paying council tax, they've been paying all their utilities and had nobody inside for yeah. some cases years. If they're still there, we can start putting together these events, man. And that's what I mean. I want to see a, a resurgence in free parties in, you know, the, uh, just the tra sort of traveling sort of festival vibe that we, we kind of had for a while at the early sort of 2010s, 20 up, upward. Um, I guess, I don't know why it kind of died out. I think just because the corporates then went, all right, we'll stick on about four times as many festivals. And it just kind of made the saturated the scene. So there wasn't really space to have these, yeah. these, these gatherings. Um, a day sometimes in the summer, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm sort of quite friendly with a few, some quite large musicians, I guess, in the UK. And yeah, hearing some of their schedules is just like the fuck, yeah. yeah it's like I've got like two, two months and I'm not gonna do anything, and then in a week, I'm gonna do 75 things, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay, okay, that makes sense. Whereas, again, I want to see this. Uh, like the way you, you can make a room of five people feel and the way you can make a festival of 50,000 feel with, with, with the performance, I think we need to re-incentivize that small gathering. We need to create spaces in each town and city for them. It's all well and good as having Reading, Leeds, Glastonbury, Boomtown, whatever else. But there needs to be that, again, that small space so that three nights a week, the next Beat Fox, the next Fox Cubs out there on the up and coming can go and find that local music find that 
culture in that scene because it's all one and good having a passion for the uh for the talent as it were but if you don't know how that fits in with your community with your with your scene with your generation of the, of the and your iteration of that um performance performative piece what do you call it uh, skill set rather then it's it's not really gonna you're not gonna get the same sort of penetration and impact into that community as you were hoping so you may be amazing but if then nobody is willing to give you that five minutes or give you that mic you are never going to be seen you're never going to be you know it's about um, understanding how to be universal there's a lot of beatboxes i feel that um they're great in front of other beatboxes but if they were to perform in front of say a pub full of people on, on the corner like a standard pub half of them aren't going to understand it so you know you kind of have to break it down to them rather than showing your best stuff straight away so you, knowing your audience is key as well you know and working with that well, yeah man, I, I encourage a lot of people to do just go out there grab open mics you know and just perform and work on that because i wasn't a born performer when i first started i was a statue i just stood there and didn't do anything mm-hmm. and it comes with it the more you practice that there's only so much you can do from your fucking house you know too true too true and i agree with that stating that for 65 shows i've sat in my house and talked shit to the world but i get out there i do some stuff on a personal level and if you hadn't done that they wouldn't be on your podcast yeah exactly exactly that exactly so it's a it's an interesting this is a very interesting time so i suppose um you kind of alluded to it earlier with the lockdown caused obviously quite a bit of um sort of difficulty with your sort of mental health you know going from sometimes being like we said 70 not necessarily 75 a week but quite busy in some weeks uh and sort of traveling around to also traveling the world you know i've been anywhere yeah. from dubai hong kong australia and i used to get a phone call to be like yo are you free on uh thursday two days yeah cool um do you want to go to germany and do a show that things like that can't happen now yeah. you know it's just it, it won't happen now Fingers crossed, not not forever. I mean, things do seem to be winding down. I did see uh, Bojo today say that masks are not going to be mandatory anymore in the UK and uh, they're winding down a few other things. But yeah, I think it's going to be a very long fucking time before anybody thinks that you can just get up and go through an airport. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So obviously the shows and everything um, kind of stopped during lockdown and this I suppose I wanted to kind of to cover this. Uh, it's something we did sort of talk about in um, pre-recording. In my research, as I do with every guest, so going into the into the into the Googles, into the DuckDuckGoes, um, your name popped up with a couple of interesting things. Firstly, I had no fucking idea that you were on uh, Take Me Out. Can you uh, tell us a, nah. a little bit about? That? <laughs> Um, fucking hell, yeah. So originally they called me for the show and I was like, uh, yeah, no, it's not for me. Left it at that. And then a couple of weeks later, I got another phone call and they were like, look, we really want you on the show. We've never had anyone that kind of is like you. I was like, all right, you know what? Fuck it. Cool. And at the time I just got into a relationship as well. And I was like, yo, do you mind if I do this show? Like it's all for TV. It's all publicity. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, she was like, yeah, fine. Fuck it. Do you know what I mean? Went on there and, uh, I don't know if you remember the set of the show, but basically I've got snakes, I am reptiles, and that came up on the video diary. And as soon as that came up, it was like, do, 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 do. <laughs> All the lights went out apart from one. So yeah, yeah long story short, um, I went to Fernando's and it was, it was a good experience all in all. I, 
it didn't really gain anything from it. Like, luckily, I drive at the time. So um, if I was getting a train, I would get recognized quite a lot, you know, within like the month that it aired. Yeah. Um, and was, the clubs I was performing at, people were like, oh my God, that's that guy. But it wasn't really great for exposure, you know what I mean? It was just a bit mm. of fun, really, and an insight into TV, which wasn't really that fun, you know? Honestly. Yeah. So I, I don't need <laughs> Don't eat red meat, don't eat steak. And um, on the date, they put the food in front of me. And I was like, what's this? You know, like I was waiting for this, you know, like I was waiting for the food and they put a steak in front of me. And I was like, who's on continuity here? Because I'm not going to eat. Like, <laughs> I was really, really pissed off with the crew. I was like, no one even asked my fucking dietary requirements. And you just chucked a steak in front of me, expecting me to eat on camera. Like, yeah. But yeah, so that was a funny experience. Yes. And they cut a lot of stuff out in the video diary. Like they edited out so much, and they were like, oh, "Can you do you reckon you can like wash your dad's car?" And I was like, oh, "No, because I wouldn't do that." So some of it is really like they really try and encourage you. But I was like, "You called me for the show, you know. I'm going to be a bit of a diva here and say no to a lot of the things you're asking." Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as you should. And again, it's the sort you for you as we spoke of before. It's not you're not just a filler. You're not just a person that the fill the, they've decided to fill in yeah, that gap. I'm not, not going to say yes because I want to be here. You know. <laughs> Yeah, you make you make that kind of determination. I mean, I've had a few uh, interactions. Obviously, I had the uh, the BBC in here uh, with Catherine Nye, and she's subsequently gone on to have her own TV show. Um, I think in Wales at the minute, and yeah, they <laughs> they were they can't obviously as a journalist, you can't encourage the person you are with to consume drugs. But the whole point of the piece was just to talk about LSD. Um, and sort of how it affects with microdosing and so yeah the the structure of the thing is me and the camera guy um in in my in my kitchen and Catherine trying to figure out in her own way of just going like well um so what would you just show us exactly what you do in the morning morning and then she was, they were kind of saying oh is, is that what you do because it doesn't look good on camera and literally I get up in the morning boom flick the kettle on uh take, take some vitamins to tea a cup of tea take some vitamins and some LSD and then I said go on so, yeah, the the controlled, what's the word, uh, staging of it, I guess, was I found quite frustrating because they were simultaneously saying, "Do exactly what you do, but make it look good." Like this, yeah. Yeah, so it was it was like it was I was sort of like, "Come on, guys, I know you're not you." I just you did. Yeah, it's like, yeah, and they were like, "Yeah, but is that exactly what you do? Is that not?" And they're almost trying to push it to go like, "Well, jazz it up," but they can't say jazz it up. Nor can they say do exactly this. So the way it was, yeah, the, the conversation was a bit, yeah. It was, yeah all right, we, we go around it, we go around it. Or do something naturally. And then they were like, oh, wait, can you do that again? But like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I found that was, because uh, then there's a consequence of that. I got invited down to the Victoria Derbyshire show and they're filming that live in Oxford Street BBC Studios. And so I sat in the green room in there and they invite, they paid for a hotel, they put me up around the corner and all this shit. If I mean the green room, and I was st stuck in there for about an hour, if not more, before I could then get on. And I was thought like putting putting makeup on, and I'm like, I don't want makeup on. They're like, you need makeup on. It's standard. Everyone's got to have minimum this. So I'm like, fucking hell, alright. And so I sat in there and talking to the other the other guests and seeing this behind the scenes of it. I don't know. It was weird. It's like I guess the first time as a kid you realize that animals or people have things on the inside. There's a whole other world that it, there's a structure to it. Do you know what I mean? It was just, it just felt morbid seeing the apparatus that built this thing. And I mean, kicked on for fucking 60 seconds in front of a live camera and then kicked off again. It was just such a, an odd experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, TV, it's, uh, 
practice. If I want to do it, I'll do it, I reckon. But it's one of them things yeah. that it depends what it's for. So mm. like I've just been uh, asked to do a potential TV show, but it's a pilot and it's not going to be aired and there's no payment. And I'm just like, well, why? <laughs> you know? What, what am I gaining here? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's an interesting... Um, the reason I sort of I tell that the the story and sort of move that anecdote is the to show the way the media can conflate certain things, can misrepresent, and can really just butcher truth, if not flat out obfuscate and hide it. Um, and so this is the second part of I guess what I wanted to to talk to you about is um, you said earlier um, that you were driving at the time, so I guess that that alluded to you currently not driving. I was wondering if you were, you wanted to sort of uh, talk us through that, if that was all right. Yeah, I can say a little bit. Um, so, yeah, there was an incident that happened a couple of years ago now. And uh, I was driving about eight in the morning to go to a school in Canterbury. And uh, as I was driving, I was in the middle lane. And uh, there was a car to my right. I didn't want to undertake it. So I've gone behind it. They were traveling about, I don't know, 50 miles an hour didn't move over so then I've had to undertake because they didn't move out my way and as I've come to do that and merge into the lane they sped up and didn't let me in mm. and basically shouted abuse at me and um from then on we were just driving so I've we've hit a, there was a crash that happened so we were in traffic and I've kind of tried to exchange some words with the driver and uh they broke down basically and I'm still trying to get to my destination we're driving long story short I got a letter through the door about eight months later being summoned to the police station for dangerous driving. And um, yeah, I lost my license because they said that I chased someone for 20 miles and I was just on the motorway driving to my destination, trying to teach a school 300 pupils to beatbox, you know, didn't expect to get almost run off the road at eight o'clock in the morning. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of really messed my life up for a while because I've got, obviously without being able to travel out the country, I get a lot of inquiries around the country. And that's now a lot of that is hard to do because I can't drive. I used to be able to do a few workshops in different cities within a day. Yeah. And now I can't do that on public transport and I have to take all my equipment everywhere. And yeah, like at the time due to COVID, I was pretty much living out my car. You know, I was dotting from place to place because I had no income. Um, yeah. When it first hit, I was in Australia and uh, I gave up the place I was living at to go to Australia because there was no point in paying rent for, I think I was aiming to be there for eight weeks. I stayed six and, um, had to come back, you know, otherwise I would have been stuck out there. Yeah. And there was a big decision I had to make. I was like, fuck, do I, do I stay here or do I come home? Obviously I wanted to stay in paradise, but, um, yeah, I had to come home. I've got animals that I need to look after and I need to look after myself. And that was a priority. So, um, yeah, I came back to nothing apart from my animals, you know, and had to figure out from then on where I was building. So I went to, Gloucestershire after a couple of months of staying at my friends and um, stayed at my mum's for a little bit, but then I was isolated there. Couldn't see any of my friends, you know? And yeah, their court case took my car away from me. So I was immobile. I had to come back to London because I needed to be in London in case work popped up. If I was in Gloucestershire, I could drive. I could just come back at will, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I came back to London with no source of income, hoping that shows would come. Tier two came in, got about three or four gigs. That's not enough for rent. Yeah. And then we went back into lockdown. So yeah, the past few years have kind of been a massive roller coaster for me. Just kind of adapting to me having to look after all of the reptiles that I've 
that I house myself and looking after my business. So through that, when I was doing calligraphy, that was like my escape because there was no stage. I built a brand and um, that income kind of sustained me for the majority of lockdown, which I was fucking grateful for because everything I was creating was ethical. It was all handmade. It was all designed by me. I put a lot of work into it and it really meant a lot to me to have that support that kind of got me through that. Yeah. yeah. So that was a huge kind of turnover for me. And I used to do art long before I beatboxed, you know, that was my passion. So for that to come back into my life through lockdown is one of the biggest positives, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how the, the universe kind of works in, in the, this, this word, doesn't it? The often negative experiences transmute us into positive steps moving forward you know they, they put us into a different level of, or plateau of our life um mm. and it very much does sound like that that is entirely what you're doing i mean it was i did really i thought it was unfair the the way the media depiction of the the incident compared to the 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 truth of it and again as i said it just it, show, it showcases the the one day they want you is you know come come beyond this thing come no lackey no lighty sort of and then the next it's you, you can be the only reason even your press was there was because of that comparison that they could go look this man who was on this tv show and had this is now fallen to this and actually the truth in in that reality is not what the fuck it was presented to be for me it was astonishing that someone had even thought it was an article <laughs> you know like who am i to write about like it was nothing to me and the fact that there was a picture in the article with someone with handcuffs i never got arrested you know, they really painted me out to be a bad person. Even the title, Bully Beatboxer, was like completely against anything, you know? I work with kids. I've, I've, I do free workshops. I, um, do you know what I mean? I do everything I can to support everyone around me. Yeah. So, I don't know, it really made a bad image of me and I was so lucky at the time that it didn't kind of spiral me into a mad, more of a depression because I had nothing at the time. Yeah. And that meant that that, took my vessel away from me you know indeed indeed and i don't know like i don't want i don't want to say this because obviously you know i take into consideration a lot of people have died during covid and lockdowns that don't quote me out of uh out of context here folks but i think that the slowing of the cogs and of our lives over the past few years have allowed a lot of us to to, to yeah to to move in different directions and really focus our attention and and come to humble realizations whether it be through life kind of going oof here's a thing or being paused and slowly coming to awareness and i think in that we're we're starting to pursue different avenues like yourself with this with this the healing with the the calligraphy and the art and the folks and creation of this new ethical branded business i think all of these things are are consequence obviously of your intention and your action but also were kind of generated by this this kind of pandemic you know what i mean yeah, exactly. Having the time to think, what do I want to do? What do I want to create? How can I do that? How can I do this? And through my travels, uh, I went to Bali and met uh, an amazing producer that I collaborated with and made this possible, you know? Mm. And um, it's something I wouldn't have thought of before because I was just like, oh, wow, that's a wicked brand you have, you know? But when I was sitting there and thinking about it, I was like, how can I create what I want to create? And certain things pop up that you haven't used that you never would have thought of, you know? Mm -hmm. Like even now, I think I'm painting two or three times a week on a big scale and I was never doing that before. And now I'm thinking, what was I doing before with my life before this, you know, and it's such an amazing outlet. And I'm, I've now got aspirations to paint the side of buildings, you know, 
like I'm talking five stories all the way down just with huge calligraphy pieces and that's something that I never would have thought of before yeah man it's again I think it's calligraphy it's interesting that you chose calligraphy as, as kind of the outlet because it's from the of the Japanese art of it it is to do with the the way in which you form it as much as it's it's completed form so in the creation of a character to deter, to depict uh, a, a certain word or a certain term or a certain feeling or whatever, in the in way that it's produced states a lot more than even just the, the thing in and of itself. So do you find that there is a, a transference of like, you know, you were saying before you think in sort of beats and in, in melodies that when you're doing in art, do you find it more of like a synesthesia of visual? So do you... The, do you know what I mean? Do you see the form of the calligraphy or do you just see a, a, like a still image of it? Oh, I think he's froze. Not sure what just happened there. I think we have lost uh, Jim Fox, uh, aka Beat Fox. That was really interesting, that conversation as well. That's a shame. Um, we'll see if he comes back. We'll pause this recording and we'll see if he comes back. Hopefully, we'll stitch him right on after this sentence. Hey! What happened there? I don't know, man. I think the internet dropped out. Gremlins. Here, innit? So I think it was just trying to connect between two of them. I get you. I get you. Yeah, it was a, a, just, it was weird. I think um rarely get sort of people uh, dropping out in, in podcasts. Like, we obviously get loops. So I've just recorded the weirdest thing in the middle. So I'm now deciding whether you find folk at home are going to get to see the insanity of me talking by myself or whether I'm going to cut that out in edit. Um, <laughs> it's just me frantically going like, what do I do? What do I click? Where is it? He's gone. He's gone. Where'd he go? <laughs> there you go. There's a preview anyway. So I'm going to have to keep that in now because Jim's back on camera. But yeah. W welcome back, brother. <laughs> uh, I suppose when you really got a few more sort of queries for you uh, that I want to pick your brain on. Um, so you've, you're a man that's, that's traveled a lot, a man that's uh, experienced quite a lot of the, the music scene. Um, festivals, what's your, where, where would you lay your, your, your tent, as it were? What's your, what's your favorite? In the UK? Yeah. In the UK. Uh, I love Secret Garden. I'm a sucker for Secret Garden. Are they bringing it back? They are, yeah, they're bringing it back this year. Ooh. So I might potentially be there. I might be performing at a queer cabaret. We'll see. Nice. And um, I've just been booked for Glastonbury as well. First time? Uh, second time. Oh, sweet, sweet. Which stage? Yeah, yeah. Um, what's it called? Oh, I can't even remember what it's called right now, to mm. be honest. Um, All good. It's a charity stage. Um, mm. I'll have to get back to you on that. No, that's cool. I'm just, just curious. I mean, Glastonbury's been on, on my list for quite a while. The reason I sort of asked is, uh, obviously, I've seen you at quite a few festivals just dotting around quite often at THTC stall um yeah. but yeah I was sort of just curious as to um as a performer but also someone that I guess I'd like to say is quite intimately sort of involved in the culture as well so you kind of have both sides of the uh stage barrier I guess um as to what you yeah you would think overall um would, would yeah it's interesting it's interesting I mean this I'm quite curious. I don't know if you've seen uh, Boomtown are resetting their calendar this year. It's year yeah. one, okay. and they're they're, they're going to create a whole new. Obviously, Boomtown are quite famed for their interactive and insane kind of 
the pageantry of it all, you know, with the districts and the stories and the narrative that we kind of went on for the was it 11 years, I think. We got to chapter, chapter or would this be chapter 11? I can't, I can't remember. I think I started going on the third year and went for about seven years on the trot and then just, yeah, watch, watched it kind of evolve and grow. And, and yeah, I'm hoping to see more smaller festivals as we were talking about before not just free parties more just yeah. events I don't, I don't care how we bill it what we call it i just want to see more of us together in fields yeah there's a nice one called wonder fields that was really nice as well i think that was capped mm-hmm. at like three thousand okay that was a good that was a good festival i think actually that's in it you bring that's interesting you think uh thing to bring up actually is the capping of the number of people because of the covid regulations of certain insurance and everything i imagine it's probably more likely we will see smaller events isn't it Probably, yeah, I reckon so. Smaller events, bigger spaces. That's what we want. That's what we want to see, man. Instead of just because that's if we then can't travel, if we want to then sort of be looking into this world of we've got to be conscious of our carbon footprint and everything else. The yeah, it'd be nice to have northern and south and east and west, just regional versions of the same sorts of events. So instead of it being an exclusive night in one place, you could have sort of a, a similar sort of vibe created, but more but bespoke and localized. Do you know what I mean? This is exactly what we're trying to do with the beatbox scene at the moment because it's hard for people, especially younger beatboxers, to travel from, say, Scotland to an event in London. We're trying to just reinforce that um, jam sessions, you know, almost because um, back when I first started, like I was saying about showing up and showing face, the beatbox scene was founded off of people that would just be like, oh, you know what, what are you doing on Saturday day? Let's all link up. And then like 30 beatboxers would all link up and make noises under a fucking bridge <laughs> for like five hours. Yeah. And that kept the scene together. That was the scene, you know? And then from that, I'll speak to him. He's done an event here. They've done this. And we then we'd link up and we'd jam and we'd go to people's houses and create routines and get booked with shows. And that's what we want to reinforce because yeah, there is a good online community now. Like I'm saying, there's over a billion streams on the Swiss beatbox, but when you do a jam, a lot of the time, it's hard to get people out of their houses so we need to reinforce the fact that it's good to turn up and create these relationships with people and have a one-on-one and jam and duo and make music or do whatever you do in your section and do it together you know yeah man i'm, re- I'm really hoping that all of these pubs and these venues these small venues that have kind of had their uh, the regulars and their small niche community that have rolled on for years, they're just not going to have the same turnover because of the collective fear of people, because of restrictions of uh, certain regulations, that they're going to need to diversify in order to survive. So I'm hoping they'll look at communities like beatboxing, like uh, spoken word, like slam poetry, literally any form of expression of communities that exist in microcosms to be able to give, be given that public arena to perform because that's where others see it and can then be inspired by it and see if they want to participate in it. Not everyone's going to be trawling through the internet and then find and stumble across the thing that they have a passion for. You have yeah. to go and see things because it's not just about your limited senses of a visual like you and I here now. It's going and speaking with a person and the nuance of their body language, of the way it makes you feel, of going and experiencing something and having that neurological and physiological feedback. That is as much a determinism as whether your eyes like looking at it or you like reading about it. Definitely. Definitely, man. Hmm. Right, well, I'm going to have to go, man. Can I get you one more question? My, my question I ask everybody. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Uh, what does the future hold for you, man? I mean, you've kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, but yeah, what's the future hold for you? Future? Um, 
I don't know, man, just carrying on this path. I'm going to obviously carry on beatboxing. I think art is going to be a massive part of my life now. Um, and just kind of build from that, see what I can establish. I've been building speakers over lockdown as well, looking into sound. So all these projects I want to do, I want to be very hands-on rather than just kind of outsource someone to make this stuff for me like an engineer. I, I want to be involved and know exactly what's going on. Well, that was Jim Fox, folks, a.k.a. Beat Fox. Big up, Beat Fox. Thank you very much for coming on, for giving me uh, some of your time this afternoon and for having a chat. Uh, really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed sort of getting a bit of an insight into the beatboxing world and into sort of Jim's uh, backstory and kind of uh, who he is. I've uh, enjoyed his his um, his skills and seen him perform at quite a few locations um, and yeah, bumped into him at quite a lot of events over the years. So it was good to be able to take this time to really have this chat. So yeah, I enjoyed that. And if you did too, folks, please check us out on patreon.com forward slash simple life, where for less than a cup of coffee a week, you can help me keep the literal lights on in this place. Um, yeah, we'll be back next week. Uh, I think who we've got next week. I don't know who it is next week. You'll have to wait and see because I can't remember. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please do like, share, subscribe, and uh, yeah, give us a, a follow wherever you are on the internet. You'll basically find us anywhere at The Simple Life. And check out at thesimplelife.com where we will be quietly renovating things over the coming weeks and months to make it far more streamlined, far more connective, interactive, and an enjoyable experience. So until then, check us out on social media. Peace and love, folks. Damn you, Internet. <laughs>